Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. So I love a good origin story. I love the story that you, you get um, a lot of times in, in books or movies where they kind of go back and you find out like the character that you know and love, like where did they come from? What was that really like? What was it like for them growing up? Hollywood agrees with me on this because they crank out a bunch of origin stories, right? Like, you know Batman, but do you know where Batman came from and how he became Batman? I'm like, oh, I'm in. That sounds great. Explain how the Dark Knight rises or whatever. Like, I want to I hear that story, you know? It's like, oh, you love Indiana Jones, but have you met young Indiana Jones? I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Young, okay, cool. This will be really great because we like origin stories, right? I think we need more origin stories, especially of some of the things that we do and experience that are just like, that, or maybe they're seasonal, and it's like, why do we do that? Why, do we, why is this, you know, we try to give them, we go, oh, Thanksgiving is something about pilgrims or something, I don't know. But then we get to Christmas, and there's just stuff that we all take for granted that we do, and we don't have enough origin stories, I think. Like, example, mistletoe. Who thought that up? What are we doing there? Someone was like, you know what we could do is we could hang this this piece of branch and then when people stop under it, they're supposed to kiss. Like, who thought that up and made that a thing? Like somebody with nefarious motives, for sure. Someone was, it's it's sketch, right? It's a little sketch, it's a little bit. Like, so what's that about? Eggnog, why does that only appear in December? Is there eggnog all year? Am I missing it on the shelves? Is it, is it like, can you get yearly nog or is that just like, is there a great nog harvest in November and then we're enjoying the first fruits of the nog harvest season in December and that's basically, I mean, I need an origin story for that. Don't email me one because someone's about to right now. They're looking it up right now. You're going to be like, I'll show you later where mistletoe came from. I, I'm, I'm just saying there's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff like that that we need some origin story. Even if you go into the the Christmas story, the actual Christmas story, and we, we start talking about Joseph and Mary. Like, don't you want a little more of their backstory? Like, how did they fall in love? Wouldn't that, would, is that made for Hollywood? Is, could we do a story on that? I don't, I don't know what's kind of what was going on in their, in their world. The wise men, we talked about them last week. I mean, we don't know much about them except they were wise and they traveled a long way to follow a star. Like, what was their lives like? What were they about? Maybe there's something cool there we could talk about. I, I need some more origin stories. So today, I want to I give you the origin story of Christmas that maybe you, you haven't heard, um, because we, we need origin stories, I think. And, and, and Chris, what got me thinking about this one is that Christmas is so often connected with the idea of love, and I don't understand why. Like, if you talk about Christmas movies, inevitably somebody comes to love actually, right? Because love, Christmas is in the air, love's in the air. Like, it's that idea that love is somehow connected to Christmas. And, and that's a little, a little weird. Like, we have a holiday for love. It's a greeting card holiday in February called Valentine's. Like, we already have that. Why does Christmas get connected to love? I feel like we need an origin story. So let me give you an origin story, what I think is behind all of that. Um, the Gospels uh, of Jesus, the four accounts of Jesus' life, uh, two of them start kind of where you think they would. They start, if they're about Jesus, they start with his birth. 
right? But the book of Matthew in particular, which tells a lot of the narrative that we associate with the Christmas story, the book of Matthew actually starts, if you're to open the book and read it, it starts with a long list of names. We'll put it up on the screen. I'm not going to read you the whole list, but there is this list. This is the opening of the story of Jesus. It is a genealogy. It goes on for about 42 generations of people who came before Jesus, establishing Jesus is in the world. This is everyone that came before him. And if you read through the genealogy of Jesus, mostly what you see there in his origin story, mostly what you see there are, are some, some big names, some famous names. You have Abraham. Everybody reading this in the first century would know, oh, Abraham, the father of, 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 of Judaism and all that, like our faith comes from Abraham. And then you got Isaac and Jacob. You go, okay, I know these characters. They're big in Genesis. The, the, the original readers of this would not need a lot of backstory. You also have people like David in there and Solomon. These are kings. Um, these are massive figures in the history of Israel. So again, no explanation is needed. And then you've got some other people who are various levels of famous in Jewish history. And, and Jews growing up in the first century, when they would read this, they would understand, okay, the, these people, okay, Jesus came from, oh, he came from that person, he came from that line. Oh, I know that family and, and that kind of thing, right? But there are a couple names in there that jump out at me when I read it, because honestly, reading, you know, if someone says, read the Bible, read Matthew, start with Matthew about Jesus, and you start with a list of names, it's, it's really, it can be really dry, right? It's very boring to read a list of names, like, oh, okay. Well, there's a couple names that actually jump out at you, and particularly, uh, there are two women that are mentioned in there that are really interesting. One of them, in, in verse 5, it says, Solomon was the, the, the father of Boaz, who is the father of Rahab. Rahab uh, was uh, written about in the book of Joshua, and she was there, and she helped Israelite spies who were spying on the sea. She took them in and, 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 and hid them so they wouldn't be captured. So she's considered like a friend to Israel um, and, and someone who was good and, and helpful to them. The thing about Rahab that's always brought up and is, and is spoke, when it is spoken about her in the, in the Old Testament is that she was a prostitute. She was Rahab the prostitute. That's kind of how she's referred to. Um, I don't think, you know, we don't even get like a last name, right? Like we just get the prostitute. And that's, that's kind of how she's thought of. And it's interesting that in Jesus' genealogy and in his backstory of all the characters, there she is. There's this woman who was considered a prostitute, which was not a, a profession held in high regard in history, right? So she's in the backstory, in the origin story of Jesus. The, the other one that jumps out at me um, is, is a woman who's actually not mentioned by name, um, but it is, uh, it is actually Bathsheba. Bathsheba, um, if you remember the story told in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, Bathsheba was um, a woman who was uh, in Israel. She was on the rooftop. She was bathing out there. King David saw her on that rooftop, and he said, oh, she looks really good, and he sent for her, and they sleep together. She ends up pregnant. Um, David tries to cover this up because Bathsheba is actually married to Uriah. And in the genealogy of Matthew, when he, uh, genealogy of Jesus that Matthew records, when he mentions Bathsheba, he says, Uriah's wife is the way he refers to her. Not David's wife, who was the, father, who, who was the mother of Solomon, who's the famous king. No, it's Uriah's wife. It's a little shot at David, I think, in the genealogy to say, you know whose wife this person really was? It was Uriah's wife because David slept with her 
And then Uriah, who's one of David's generals in war, uh, David had Uriah killed to cover up so that Uriah wouldn't find out that she was pregnant with David's child. So in a, in a very made-for-Hollywood sort of scandalous thing, you've got this adultery that happens followed with a murder um, and, and a cover-up. All of that shows up as the great-great-great-great-great-grandmother or whatever of Jesus. This is his family tree. Now, I, I sit with a lot of couples um, and, and talk about premarital counseling. And one of the things we always do in premarital counseling is we talk about family trees. Draw me your family tree. Like, where'd you come from? Who are these people? Who are these people? And, and what you find out, and you've probably done this or thought about this, but everybody's got stuff in their family tree, right? You've got that uncle who went off the rails. You've got the grandfather who was alcoholic, and we had to deal with it in the family this way. There's like skeletons in every closet. And that's true of Jesus, when we see his, his genealogy and we read, there are some people in there, there, there is just some rough stuff there. And this tells me a couple things about God. Number one, I think we can see that and realize that God specializes in making good things out of bad situations. Rahab, the prostitute, I'm sure that's not how she wanted her life to end up or how she wanted to be known forever, uh, for her to be in prostitution in the ancient world. Some things had to have gone terribly wrong for her. She did not grow up and dream of a life of prostitution. She probably wanted a, a family and kids and, the, and, and, and kind of the whole thing in the ancient world, and yet that's where she ended up selling herself to men for money, um, and, and that's one of Jesus' uh, family. Uh, Jesus was born into a family that included people like her. He was born into a family that included adultery and murder. So what do we learn about God in, in this? Um, we learn that God could have chosen any family in the world, and yet he chooses that one. It would have been very easy for Jesus to be born in something that is so obviously royalty. He could have been born in a palace in Rome amongst the greatest and most powerful people of the day. He could have been born there. And if you're God, you can orchestrate that, right? He could make it happen that his son coming to earth would come to earth in the most impressive way with the most fanfare in front of the most important powerful people because he's a world changer and he's, you know, pedigree and all that kind of thing. He could have been born there. And yet what we learn about God is he has a heart for outcasts and the downtrodden and the poor and the hurting. He doesn't come to the awesome people and just show up and to help them be more awesome. He comes to people who are bad and broken and bored and, and, and needy and hurting. God has a special place in his heart for people who don't have much of a place in the world. God loves um, people who are struggling, not just the wealthy, perfect, privileged people. You, you see this from Jesus, like, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of inferring that from what I'm reading there, right? But you actually see Jesus talk this way when he grows up and he starts teaching people about who he is and who God is. In fact, one of the first times Jesus ever taught about his mission, about his, sort of announcing his arrival on the scene as, the, as this rabbi in, in the ancient world, uh, was he went to a synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. And when he was there, he, he went in on, on Sabbath day and all the men would be in there seated and they're reading through the scrolls and they're reading through the scripture and they would use it to challenge each other and encourage each other. And Jesus shows up in Nazareth and he stands up and he reads the scripture. And it says, when he reads it, he, fi he finds the section of the scroll of Isaiah from the Old Testament and he reads it to them. And then he basically says, um, after he reads it to them, he says, 
this, this scripture, this prediction is now being fulfilled in me. I am the answer. I am what you have been seeking. I am what you're looking for, which was extremely controversial. We'll, we'll talk about this text more in a couple months, but it was extremely controversial, um, and they wanted to kill him for it. But listen to what the text says. This is what Jesus stood up and read when he was sort of announcing his mission to the people. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to who? The poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When Jesus shows up on the scene, there's many ways he could have handled this. He could have said, he could have found a different scripture, I suppose, from the Old Testament, and he could have said, look, I'm the king, y'all. Y'all need to recognize and worship because I am that guy. I am the hope you have been waiting for. I am, I am everything you've, you've hoped for all your life. I am that guy. Everybody bow down and worship me because I am that powerful. I have, I have all. He could have done that, but he doesn't. He stands up and he says, because I'm here, and he finds the scripture, and he says, because I'm here, um, this is good news for the poor, for the oppressed, for the outcast, for the hurting, for the broken. It's good news that I'm here. I'm, I'm here to elevate those who are struggling. I'm here to encourage the discouraged. For those people who feel like they are not worth it, they feel like they are second class, this is really good news. And it was good news then, it's good news now. Because honestly, a lot of us feel like we're second class. And we feel like we're not worth it. And we feel like we're bad. And we're broken. And we're messed up. And that we mess up. And the truth is, when Jesus shows up, he shows up to love us. And, love, and, and, show, and God sends Jesus to show his love to the world. And once you see that, once you notice it, it it's actually hard to miss. God has a love for the marginalized, the, the widows, the orphans, the hurting. The, like, it, it shows up all over the Gospels. Uh, let, me, let me give you another spot. When, when Jesus is talking about, uh, not just when he announces what he's there to do, he makes this prediction when he says, this is the way it's going to be in the end times. When, when, the, when time is, is over and we're all kind of at the end of this thing, here's what's going to happen. Jesus explains this in Matthew 25, and this is what he says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, he's referring to himself, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Who is he describing? People who are hungry, uh, naked, in prison, oppressed, struggling. That same crowd, the marginalized people. And then he says, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when, when did we do that? Like, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? 
And when do we see you in sick or prison and visit you? Because, you know, if, if I was standing there, I'd be like, Jesus, I would have remembered if I met you, and I don't think I did. When did I ever do any of these things to you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. It's, it's a really powerful idea that when we serve people who are hurting, when we sit down and have that coffee and listen, when we when we go there in empathy with someone, when we, when, we, when we find someone in a hard spot and we come alongside them in, in practical ways or emotional support or, or whatever, when we do this for people who are struggling, um, in a very real way, we are doing this to Jesus himself. Um, it's a very powerful thing. When you, when you serve people who are hurting, you are serving Jesus. So let's talk about this in terms of Christmas. At Christmas, we are celebrating the birth of Jesus. And the way we celebrate the birth of anybody in our culture is to have a party and give them presents. It's a birthday party. Oh, you were born today. Today is the day we are going to celebrate you and we are going to give you something. If Christmas, then, is the birthday party for Jesus, and some churches get really cute with that. Happy birthday, Jesus, instead of Merry Christmas. That's next level, Merry Christmas. Okay, fine. Um, but if we're, if we're going to be honest about this, Christmas is not my birthday, not yours, it's Jesus's, right? What would you give Jesus for Christmas? Like, if, if that's the way we celebrate, if we want to give him something, what would you give him? Well, it's kind of hard to buy for someone who has everything, right? There's always that challenge. And then there's like, you know, if Jesus wanted me to give him, I mean, he could just go buy whatever he wanted. He could just take the thing if he needed it. Like, I don't need to, right, but there, there is something of value when we voluntarily over, well up in love and generosity and give to somebody else. Like there's something powerful about that. So if we're going to do that with Jesus, um, what, what would he want us to give him? Well, I think these scriptures kind of tell us. He wants us to give to those who are in need. Because when we do that, it's like we're giving to him. That's how we do it. The way we give a present to Jesus is we give, a, a, give something uh, time, energy, money, some, some sort of gift towards those who are in need, and we help. We step into a place where we can help, and by doing that, we are actually giving the, the gift to, to Jesus. So how do we do that? We've talked about it these last couple of weeks, about fully engaging the season. We talked about it Thanksgiving weekend, that, that we need to worship fully in this season. And then we talked about ways that we can spend less, maybe dial back the consumer grab fest of the season and spend less at Christmas. Uh, we, we talked about some ways to do that. Um, and then in addition to spending less, is there ways to give more? Is there ways to be more generous? Can we, can we make a gift? Can we give of our time and not just money? Are there different things that we can do to show our love for our loved ones at, at Christmas? And then we challenge you with this idea, and I, I want to bring this back to us, that a way that we can give and a way that we can love um, is to, to give to the Advent offering where we are going to pool our resources as a church. We're going to pull our money together and we're going to give it in a lump sum to pay off medical debt for people who are struggling under a ton of medical debt. We're working with an organization called RIP Medical Debt and they, they are set up to do this. They purchase medical debt for people in, in the poorest demographics across the country, people who have 
major medical bills that they're, they're struggling under, and we give them the money, and they use it to pay off that debt, and then they let that person know, hey, this church in Richmond, Virginia paid off your medical debt. You're, you're good to go. Um, and so uh, it's an incredible thing. It's incredible the way it works. I've, I've talked to other churches that had done it uh, in the Midwest, and I had asked them how it worked, and it was a a pretty cool thing because your money goes about $100 to every dollar you give. I mean, there's some fees in there, so it's not exact, but roughly 100 to one. So if we gave um, $20,000 as a church to this, this, this Christmas, that's almost $2 million of medical debt that we'd be able to pay off. So it scales really well, and it can make a huge impact. Um, and so w- one of the challenges of the season is, hey, can you, while you're giving to all these things, can you give to this offering and, and help and, and help people um, get out from underneath some pretty significant debt because medical debt uh, can can really crush people. Um, I, I've had some experience with, with uh, medical debt and and trying to trying to deal with it, um, and uh, it can it can be a lot. Uh, back in 2011, um, some of you may know the story, but back in 2011, my son got very sick. Um, we went to the hospital. Um, and we thought, uh, for, there was a 24-hour period there where we thought he had cancer um, and because he had this, something like a tumor in his stomach, and uh, it was a scary time. A lot of people prayed. A lot of people around the world prayed for us. A lot of people in the church here prayed for us, um, and oh, about 24 hours later, we got it sorted, and it was actually a ruptured appendix, and um, he, he ended up spending, all told, over the course of a month and a half, he was probably in the hospital for... 15 days or something like that. So um, there's a lot of things I could say about that, and I, maybe I will at another time, and I have in the past. Um, things about how God showed up, about the power of prayer, about praying for things that you can't fix, and how often I pray for things that I'm going to fix anyway. I'm like, God, I'm going to go do this thing. Would you just bless it? And, and coming into one of those situations where you know you can't fix it, and you pray, and you just go like, God, would you please do something? I have no idea. Nobody seems to know. Nobody can fix it. Medicine can't fix it. You know, what do we do? Um, And and so I I learned some things about praying those kind of prayers as well. But I do want to tell you this story of what happened with it. Um, One of the things that happens when you uh, are in get medical bills like that. It's like they, they pile up and it ends up being a lot. At, at that time, our family, we had health insurance. And um, that sounds great, except that, uh, you know, they have these deductibles that you have to meet. For your, you know what I'm talking about? If you have this, right, you have these deductibles you have to meet. And so um, those trips to the hospital, we, were, we met our deductible pretty quickly, and it was going to be $5,000. And um, I didn't have a spare $5,000 around. I was like, okay, so in addition to navigating the medical things, you have a, you have a, a financial situation. Um, and one Sunday after church here, uh, a young couple from our church uh, was talking to us on the sidewalk, and they're like, how are you guys doing? And they're like, oh, that's just been a lot, um, just navigating this whole thing. And then they said to us, um, hey, when you get your medical bills, um, just give them to us. We want to pay for all of them. And um, I don't, you know, I don't know how you would respond in that moment. I was trying to be cool. Um, I mean, inside I'm like, oh wow, you know. But there's also this thing that kicks up in me and might kick up in you. But there's this thing that's like, 
I shouldn't have to rely on anybody else's generosity and I need to take care of myself and I need to handle my own business and you don't, you know, maybe that's just my own ego, maybe that wouldn't bother you, but there was this piece of me that was like, ah, is this so, like, I don't, I don't know, is this okay, should I, should I do this? And, it, and it's a little weird because Jesus actually taught it's more blessed to give than to receive. And, and if I say to them, don't do this, no, don't help me. Basically, what I'm saying is don't be blessed by God. You don't get blessing. Don't, no, I would rather be the giver so I can be blessed. But if you want to be blessed, I'm not interested. I'd rather not receive that and let you be blessed by God, which is weird, right? If we really believe it's more blessed to give than we receive, then why do we try to block people who are trying to be generous and give? So I kind of weigh all this, whatever. I mean, I think what I said was thank you. Uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't like process it out loud or whatever and it was incredible they 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 paid uh they paid all our medical bills this couple from the church and you know you can say oh well i mean lucky for you chris like you knew some people and you knew some people with means and they were generous and that was cool and it must must be nice um and yeah i i, I get that i i feel blessed by that but the truth is that blessing came because i was part of this community and I knew people in this community, and people in this, this community loved me. And I'm not the only one who's been blessed like that over the years in this church. There are generous people here, and they have flowed generous, their generosity towards other people in this community over and over over the last 13 years. So I'm not the only one. But I think the reality is um, I, I was blessed that, that God used them to bless me because I was part of this community. There are lots of people that aren't part of this community who are, who are drowning in medical debt and actually who aren't part of any community at all or not part of any community that can help them. And that's, that's hard. Because if you get medical, a medical problem and you're not well-connected in community that can support you and help, if you have a medical problem, it becomes a financial problem. And, it, and if you have a financial problem, it can become a marriage problem real quick. And a marriage problem can then become a parenting problem in, in, with, with kids. I mean, it just, there's a domino effect to all of this. And so we have an opportunity to make a difference this year um, and, and to pool our resources to help people that are in need. And I want to challenge us to really do this together. Um, I, I, love, I love that we're doing this because I think when you think about um, serving the, the, those who are most in need, as Jesus taught us to do, and that, that, that this is the way that we can do that. that. And this helps us remember what Christmas is all about. It is very easy to forget in the season what Christmas is all about. I think about um, the Charlie Brown Christmas special, which uh, came out in 1965. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and assume you've all seen it at least once. That may not be true. If, it, if it's not true, schedule a viewing this week of the Charlie Brown Christmas special. I'm going to give you some spoilers here. It's been out since 1965. I think we're past. I have to give a spoiler alert warning. Um, but Charlie Brown uh, is really struggling in this Christmas special. And basically, he's struggling to understand, like, to, to feel the Christmas spirit. He's under, struggling to, like, I can't get into Christmas. And, and he has a hard time. Um, I think nowadays we would diagnose Charlie Brown with severe anxiety and depression. Um, he's super mopey. We didn't do that in 1965. I, I don't know what we did. You told him to walk it off. I don't know. But like, so he's walking around and he's frustrated and anxious and so discouraged about Christmas. Remember, he said this. He said, I think there must be something wrong with me, Linus. 
Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. And isn't Charlie Brown everybody? <laughs> like, he's got that everyman quality about him. Like, because maybe that's how you feel, right? You're like, I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel about this. Something's off. This thing isn't landing for me. It, I don't care how many times the song says, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Except if it isn't. If you're not feeling that, you're just like, oh, the irony of this song again. You know, you know what I mean? Like, you can tell me in a song all you want how great this is, but I'm not feeling it. And that's the way Charlie Brown was. And if you remember, he goes to his friends and he's kind of saying this stuff because he's a bit of a downer and he's just like, you know, telling them all this. And, the, and his friends, I mean, let's be honest, they kind of suck. Like, they're not, they're not ever so helpful. Lucy tries, okay? Lucy she does the psychologist thing, and she's like trying to figure out what he's afraid of. You have fear, you have anxiety, you're all worked up. What are you afraid of, Charlie Brown? She starts naming all these fears of spiders and all these things. And then finally, if you remember, she says, oh, well, maybe you have pantophobia. And he says, what's pantophobia? And she says, it's the fear of everything. And he yells, that's it, right? I'm afraid of everything. This is, this is my thing, right? I'm, I'm just anxious, right? Charlie Brown says this. But, but, but in solving the Christmas thing of why he's not feeling it, she empathizes. She can't solve it. She empathizes. She says this, I know how you feel about all this Christmas business, getting depressed and all that. It happens to me every year. I never get what I really want. I always get a lot of stupid toys or a bicycle or clothes or something like that. And she's not helpful at all. She's just... You know, she's just in the pit with him, right? Like, which feels good, I guess, but she's not going to give him a way out. Like, she's just sitting there in the, in the hole. Like, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't get it either. This is awful, right? And, and sort of the climax of the whole thing is when uh, Charlie, when he's trying to put together this Christmas pageant, he's still got this under, underlying feeling of anxiety, and he finally says, isn't there anybody who can ex basically explain what Christmas is? It kind of blurts it out. And enter Linus and his little blue blanket. Linus steps up and he goes, oh, I can tell you what Christmas is about. And he recites Luke chapter 2 about the angels and appearing and suddenly a great company, the heavenly hosts appeared to them and they, and they were sore afraid. And, and he, he, tells, he basically tells the birth of Jesus. All of your angst and anxiety of I'm not feeling the spirit of this and it, it doesn't feel like the most wonderful time of the year and it's season of giving and the love actually and put all of that in a blender and all of that weirdness that you feel and along comes the answer. The answer is this is actually about Jesus. That's what this is. That's really what we're doing here. I, I know it gets clouded and, and, and covered over with all of the other things but at the end of the day, this is what it's actually all about. It's about the birth of Jesus, about God coming to earth and, and walking in our soil. I think if we pursue the dopamine hits of, of gift giving only, I think we're going to miss out on what Christmas is all about. But I do think if we give to someone in need and serve the, 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 the hurting and the broken and the, and the poor, I, I think we will be connecting with Jesus at Christmas and we will actually be giving him a gift and we will be loving like he calls us to love. 
Probably the most famous verse in the whole Bible is part of the Christmas origin story. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you see the progression there? For God so loved, because he is so loving, he loved first because when we were still sinners, he, he loved us. He moved towards us. When we were still broken, when we were hurting, before we even cried out and asked him to save us, he loved us. And because he loved us, he gave. This is what we do when we love. We give. We're generous. This is why, this is why men buy uh, engagement rings to, and give to a woman. I love you and I'm going to give. This is what it looks like. Love always brings about generosity. And so, that's the origin story of Christmas, that God loved first, and he gives to us Jesus. And it is our responsibility to now pass that on, to pass that love on to others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for um, coming to earth and um, being with us, um, being uh, present in this world so that we could know how to live, how to walk, how to be, how to speak, to think, to, um, to, to function. Uh, you, you taught us that. God, thank you for being loving towards us and, and that, that love flows to generosity. I pray as we, um, as we navigate these last few weeks of the Advent season, I, I pray that we, um, we are generous also and that we, we think in terms of how to give gifts to you and how to love and serve you um, in, in, the, in the midst of all of this. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.